todo el mundo. Was really... 1881. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. My guest today is D.G. Brock Deborah, who got her start in the Hollywood trenches working for the famous B-movie producer Roger Corman. Her first film for him was Slumber Party Massacre 2, which features a guitar-wielding driller killer with a devastating penchant for rockabilly music and murder. Then she worked with Corey Feldman and Vincent Gallo. She's got stories. We'll talk all about that, plus her rock and roll nightmares, current projects, and a big announcement. Welcome to the show, Deb. Hi. Slumber Party Massacre 2 was your first film. Um, how did it come about? And um, the storyline, I know you wrote the script, but did you have to base it on a producer's idea, or how did that all come about? It came about because I was working for Roger Corman at the time. And I was offered another job by another company. And I had been trying to get, but I had been trying to get Roger to let me direct something for him. And when I was offered a, another job by another company, it, in fact, it was a company that Roger used to own that he had sold about a year before. He had sold New World to uh, some lawyers in Hollywood for a lot of money. Um, but I knew that Roger did not react well if you got demanding with him. So uh, I went in to see him and I said, Roger, I need some career advice. And, and, and he said, oh, what's that? And I said, well, New World is offered me a job as a vice president of, of post-production, but I'm really leery of going over there because I don't think they know what they're doing. And I think uh, I'm worried about them uh, surviving as a company. And he said, you're absolutely right, Deborah. They'll be broken 18 months. 
<laughs> and he was right, you know. And I said, okay, well, thanks. And, and then I said, but you know, uh, I don't want to be the head of post-production forever. Uh, I, I really, as I've been talking to you, I um, want to write and direct. And he said, I have a film you can direct right away. It's called Slumber Party Massacre 2. And I sold the all the international rights based on the title alone. Uh -huh. wow. He was so proud of himself, of course. And I said, the idea of directing a horror film was not, you know, the first thing in my my list of things to direct. The stuff I'd been talking to him about were uh, comedies and action films. And then I thought, well, Jesus, he's got a need. Let's let's fill his need if we can. And I and I said, well, is there a script? And he says, no, there's nothing but a title. Whoa. <laughs> and I said, all right, I'll do that if you want me to. And he said, sure. So that's how I came to write the script. And then we were getting ready to shoot it. And um, it had no official producer other than Roger. And Roger didn't get that involved with his films anymore. He was usually the executive producer. So I went into him one day, one day and I said, Roger, can I be the producer on Slumber Party? Because we don't have one and I'm doing it anyway. And he said, sure. Because he loved it anytime he got something he didn't have to pay extra for. All right. I mean, <laughs> I asked him, all, this, all this was based on my insight from working for Roger for like three years into what made him tick and um so so i you know i became the producer and the director and the writer you know but i also had a friend i brought on as the co-producer because i needed help and he was an experienced production manager that was don daniel who's also credited on it as a producer and was tons of help Otherwise, I think I might have had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> uh -huh. So how did you come up with the rock music tie in just based on that title alone? Because when you look at the first Slumber Party Massacre film, um, it's like kind of a departure. Well, I looked at the first Slumber Party Massacre and I thought, really, all you need here to do a sequel is a drill, <laughs> some <laughs> kind of a drill thing. Uh, killing people, killing people, and um, you can say that the main character in your sequel is somebody who was in the first film, but they probably don't even need to be played by the same actress. And, and what I did was I picked the little sister of one of the uh, main characters in the first film who you don't see very much of her. I didn't want to make a film like Slumber Party Massacre 1. I wanted to make something that made me happy. And what made me happy was the idea of it being a rock musical with a really wicked black sense of humor on top of it. Somehow in that music idea of it being a musical, I came up with the idea 
of it being a rock guitarist with a drill on the end of his guitar. I thought that was a very interesting metaphor for uh, certain kinds of, of mu rock music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it was such a theatrical and... Um... Right, right. Well, in the first slumber party, the, the young women, the teenage girls, actually destroy the uh, killer guy with the, the nut job with the drill. And I was certainly going to continue that because we, these were the horror movies where the women won in the end. Right. Was, if we were going to have, a, if we were, if we were starting a series here with sequels, I was going to continue that idea because I was all for it. I basically wrote it to connect it in some ways to Slumber Party 1 give Roger some things I knew that would make him happy and to make myself happy, you know, because I didn't want to work on a film that wasn't going to make me happy. <laughs> it's too right. hard I mean, to work. Yeah, your first movie, out, you know, as a director, it has to be something you're going to enjoy too and be happy to look back on. Well, yeah, and, and also it's an incredible, it was an incredible amount of work for which I got paid being writer- director and producer, $16,000. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> uh, which was very- I bet you yeah. had some left over, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Which was, <laughs> which was very typical of the kinds of things that Roger paid people. But I usually with Roger got to do a lot of stuff that I wanted to do because I didn't bother him about money. I just knew the money would be shit and, you know, I, I wasn't going to make a, annoy him by making any kind of deal about it. I was just going to accept whatever he was paying and then, frankly, do what made me happy. It pretty much worked, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, that guitar is really something else and I have to ask you about it. Um, you know, I mean, obviously you dreamed it up, but somebody had to create it. Did you kind of help with the design or did you kind of say, hey, this is what I want and they ran with it? I was able to get some pretty good special effects guys, Rick Brophy and Jim Cummins, who had done House. I don't remember if you remember the House horror movies. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Enemy Mine, which I think was sort of sci-fi. Oh, yeah, that was the, uh, was it Lou Gossett Jr.? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah, it was sci-fi. And then they went on to do their own film called The Boneyard. They were, you know, experienced special effects people, and they were really into it. And when I told them what the plot line was and how I wanted this guitar with a drill on the end, they didn't, they didn't quibble with me either about the shitty money. They wanted to do it because I guess it gave them all kinds of cool ideas, you know. And, oh, yeah. I mean, it's iconic yeah. now. Yeah. And um, I think the person who did most of the designing was Jim Cummins. So I said, I want something really outrageous uh, with, with points on it and swoops and stuff. And they said, oh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we're going to have fun with this. And then I went over to see it when they were, had got it into the point 
I don't think it was painted yet, but it was all one piece or was becoming one piece. I don't, I didn't make many changes in it. They just got it. Wow. You know? And and I was like, yeah, that's cool. The only thing that happened was there were two. There was the picture, the show, the hero guitar, which was for all the close-ups and everything. And then there was a lighter one that was made out of just plastic. And it, um, I don't even think it had a working drill. It had a drill, but the drill did not turn. Right. On the oh, show okay. guitar, it, it turned. And the reason that it turned was it had a Makita drill inside of the body of the guitar. It was quite heavy. And they, so they made a lighter one for um, the Drilla Killer character to dance around, which would be easier for him to dance around with, you know, carry and things. Atanas came over to, Atanas Illich was the guy who played the Drilla Killer. He came over to their workshop to, um, see the guitar and to get used to the guitar. And I think it was the action guitar, the lighter one. He was spinning around and dancing with it and practicing stuff. And it flew out of his hands and onto the concrete and broke. Ah. So they had to start over on that one. They weren't happy with him. And Oh, man. He wasn't happy with himself either, but they, they got it all together. Yeah. I mean, well, the 80s was kind of, for whatever reason, the era of, of drill kills. Of course, everyone probably who's into horror remembers the Brian De Palma body double kill. And then, of course, the first Slumber Party Massacre. Uh, I don't remember De Palma. I remember that movie, but I don't remember De Palma having any effect on me. Okay, and, yeah, and there was kind of a big balderall about that, you know, saying how misogynistic it was because it's symbolic and phallic and, you know, you're killing this woman with a drill. Yeah, I was uh, totally aware of that and, and I wanted to do it because there was all this implied misogynism in horror films back then. Right. Or it was slightly undercover and people didn't talk about it but it had become accepted tropes of horror films. And I wanted to make it really evident what yeah, was going right. on here, what it was all about. Did, did you know that Slumber Party 2 got uh, banned in uh, the United Kingdom? Really? When, wow. That was the, Roger, the era of the video nasty, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was the era of the video nasty. And and the UK Board of Censors wrote Roger a letter and said it was a really purient mixture of rock music, violence, and... <laughs> they didn't get the comedy part of it, right? No, they didn't, they didn't get, they didn't get the comedy at all. And, and they didn't get that it was essentially... It was a meta film. It was a comment on what was going on in other films and in pop culture. But uh, I just thought of them as a lot of really, really uptight uh, old British guys in suits. Oh, yeah. Although I never met them. So, no, they didn't get it at all. And <laughs> Roger wasn't happy because he wanted the money from 
the United Kingdom, uh, of course. Uh, what was funny, because I had to pretend to be real concerned about that when he called me up on the phone and told me that, 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 that it had been banned in the United Kingdom. Uh, and inside, I was smiling because I thought, well, if it's that offensive to these people who don't get it, then it's working. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've done your job correctly. I've done my job. I mean, later on, it was distributed in the United Kingdom, but right, not right at first when they were all worried about the video nasty thing. Wow. Why do hard rock and horror go so well together? Because there really are a lot of really terrific movies that kind of blend the two. They're both really intense and visceral art forms. You know, they're shocking to a certain degree and they're intense. And I think a lot of them are, dr are driven by sexuality. That's like an undercover in definitely in, it's definitely in hard rock. And I think there's a lot more sexuality driving horror films than people let on all the time. And uh, what I liked about it was rock music made me want to get up and dance. So I had the killer, the driller killer, as we called him, I had him dance with his guitar all around this house where this was taking place. And to a small degree, we didn't really have the equipment. You know, the camera got to dance with him a bit. Was that, What was he like to work with? Was he game for all that? It sounds like he was pretty into it if he broke the guitar. Oh, no, he was a dream to work with. He had been in Hollywood for a little while trying to he had an album he could sing he had an album and he also was trying to get acting jobs and he was actually the first person that the casting director brought in to audition for the oh, film wow. other other than that he had this album that had a music video for it which is where i saw that he could dance um, he hadn't done anything to speak of, and he came in and he auditioned, and he seemed, you know, he seemed really good to me, but he was, he was not a large man. He was a pretty short guy. I don't think he was over about five foot eight, and, or seven or eight, and I thought, well, is he going to be that menacing? He's not very tall you know, uh -huh. and I was worried about that. And then I thought, well, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to cast the first person I saw. I don't know what's out there. So we kept seeing people and some of the people we saw, we saw um, uh, a beyond his cell day teeny bopper rocker named Leif Garrison, I think. I don't know if you remember him. Oh, yeah. You Leif know. Garrett. Garrett, that's it. Yeah, Leaf Garrett. I yeah, sure Leaf do. came in. So you know, the the casting directors were trying to, you know, they were trying to find people who could at least fake playing the guitar well, and, <laughs> and it would help if they really played it and uh, and dance and sing and also could act. I mean, it wasn't an easy thing for, for the casting directors, but they were young and full of enthusiasm, just like me. 
I mean, that's what Roger always had. He always had these people working for him who were young and full of passion and loved movies and music. And they were just thrilled to death to have the job, even though if it didn't pay much. So yeah, I mean, uh, Roger Corman gave a lot of women directors their first shot. Yeah, I didn't think he ever got enough credit for it because until recently, when they finally were forced to open the doors in Hollywood to women directors, and they were forced by the fact that the feds were going to sue them for sexism, and they didn't do it out of the kindness of their heart. Right. Um, um, And that really only happened in about the last four years. They were very unfriendly and not open to women directors. But Roger, I think that Roger actually preferred working with women and he didn't seem to be sexist at all in those in those ways, which is, you know, was very interesting. He's been quoted, he didn't say this to me, but somebody said he told them this, that um, he said, You get the career and I get the money. That's what the deal is. (laughs) You're not going to get paid very much to do this, but now you've done it. You can go on and hopefully have some kind of career. And we used to call him, his staff that worked for him, we used to call him the equal opportunity exploiter because he didn't care if you were a woman or a man. He also, uh, he and Julie also started um, a black director. Uh, Carl Franklin did his early career for Roger Corman. He was open. It was just don't ask for for any money. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you uh, did your next film with him too, uh, Rock and Roll High School Forever with Corey Feldman. We got Corey because he was trying to get a career together in music, you know, and he was already a very recognized star in movies. So it was really interesting to him that that he was going to leave this rock and roll band and be able to sing and stuff in the movie. When I went into Roger and I said, I think we can get Corey Feldman for Rock and Roll High School Forever, but we're gonna need, we're gonna need to be able to pay him. (laughs) My way of saying, Roger, you have to come up with some more money if we're gonna get Corey to do this. And then you also worked with someone else who sort of has a reputation, Vincent Gallo, where you were a producer on Buffalo 66. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? I actually did two Vincent Gallo films. Oh, okay. What was the other one? I did Buffalo 66. And then I did a really strange film he did with Chloe Sevigny called The Brown Bunny. Oh, I remember that one, the famous blowjob. Yes, yes. Anyway, <laughs> how did you get into that one, Deb? Because I was one of the few people in, uh, other than Chloe, in uh, <laughs> Hollywood who could get along with him. Frankly, most people could not get along with him for more than about 30 minutes. He's very difficult, you know. But um, so I got invited back for Brown Bunny. And uh, that was that was a strange film. 
Yeah, and what did you think about all the, you know, sort of the commentary and the fallout and the just, it was really a big deal at the time. I was anticipating it because uh, the production manager who was on the set one day when Vincent and Chloe were doing their sex scene, called me up and said, Deb, can you think of some way to make something that looks like cum <laughs> on film? <laughs> like, you know, I'm thinking, well, I'm sure there's lots of porn people who could tell us that. But uh, we came up with some formula over the phone that she was going to try to produce this artificial um, cum. And I guess it worked because everybody was talking about that scene being so realistic. For some reason, Chloe really got along with Vincent, but he was also very nice to her. See, Vincent was like this two-edged sword. He could be charming and nice, and then, but underneath it all, he was really uh, a, a sociopath. So yeah, well, that's half a Hollywood for you. Yeah, as I say this, I'm going, well, what else is new? It was just <laughs> he was in some he was the particular person I did two movies with who was like that. And despite it all, he had talent. I don't know, he just wanted to be the little king on the set, even about things he didn't know about. I had somehow made an impression on him when I worked on Buffalo 66 because they were having really terrible problems with it. I was actually originally hired by the bonding company and we managed to solve all these technical problems that the film had. I thought it was funny that you said, did you have any meetings with Vincent? I wouldn't even call them meetings. Vincent and I were working together a whole lot so that I got to know him. And see, Vincent had this bad habit that he would find somebody on the crew to start picking on that he did not like for some reason. And he could be very sarcastic and nasty. And he would just start picking on this person until they turned into, were having a nervous breakdown and quit, you know. Well, I want to segue back to music a little bit. Um, what a question that I ask sometimes on this show is, what is the most memorable concert you've ever seen? Well, I think it was a Grateful Dead concert in Austin, Texas, a theater or a amphitheater that had a what we called the Bouncing Balcony. Oh, is, that sounds dangerous. Yeah, it was. Um, because they, of course, got the crowd really going, and I was sitting under the balcony, and I looked up, and I could see the balcony was moving, you know, what for me was the ceiling was the bottom of the balcony, and it was definitely going up and down, and I thought, gee, eventually it's gonna go too far, Yeah. <laughs> whatever. And um, I mean, the dead was just, they were doing their thing, but they just created such a whole happening going on in, you know, with their concerts and stuff. That was the one where the guy next to me uh, 
told me that he could control everything that was happening in the concert, including the dead, with his mind. Oh, that right. sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, well, he was he was just, you know, high as a kite. Everybody there was high as the kite. Right, and even it, if you weren't smoking, you were probably getting a contact high. Oh, well, yeah. And at one point, this incredibly sweet, smoky smell started suffusing the whole um, auditorium. <laughs> and, and I said, ooh, it was something I had never smelled before. I, I was there with a friend, a girlfriend, and her older brother. And, and I turned to the older brother and I said, what is that smell? And he said, oh, some guys in the front row are smoking opium. That's what it is. Opium was smoked. And the guy next to me controlled the whole thing with his mind. <laughs> oh, well, I have to ask you the obligatory question. Uh, what is your rock and roll nightmare? My rock and roll nightmare has to do with filmmaking. It has to do with filmmaking on Slumber Party Massacre, which is it, in the film, the driller killer does this uh, dance that I was talking about with his guitar with the drill on the end. He dances all around this house to a song called Let's Buzz. And, um, and I was trying to do this shot where he was gonna slide down the banister of the stairs. We had stairs built into our set and he was supposed to slide down the stairs, um, which was not a problem except for, I don't know if I didn't tell them or they didn't get it, get the 411 or what. The art department, because you had to shoot up into the stairwell, the art department did not have a roof on the stairwell. It was just open to the rafters of the stage. So then they had to go through these perambulations to cover the roof so we could shoot up and it would look like a house that had a ceiling. Right. All right, right before this, Roger Corman shows up. He used to occasionally come while people were shooting and just see how it was going, I guess, to fly the flag. In fact, um, my co-producer, Don Daniel, had invented a signal that everyone at the studio knew, which if, it, if Roger was seen driving up in the parking lot or coming in the front door of his studio, the receptionist would immediately get on the phone system and call everybody around the studio and tell them that Jennifer was there. Oh, okay. This was the code word for Roger. He was oh. Jennifer. And uh, and also the assistant editors, I mean, assistant directors with their walkie-talkies, they would talk to each other on the walkie-talkies and say, Jennifer is here. So everybody knew he was there and he, but he came in while the art department was struggling with this piece of the set and that they just about had it together. And Roger was fretting because what Roger wanted to see was action. He wanted to see shots being shot yeah. quickly, you know, and he actually turned, he actually turned to me and said, what is going on? 
And I said, well, there's no ceiling on the stairwell and they're putting a ceiling on the stairwell. And he said, why don't you just change the shot, Deb? And I thought, no, because this is my favorite shot in the whole dance. <laughs> so, so, I, so, so I said, oh, well, they're almost finished. And, and then the cameraman came to me and said that they were having to reload the camera. We were shooting with film at that time, 35 millimeter film. And he said, we have to read, all the magazines are out. We have to reload a magazine. And I was like, oh, Tom, I do not want to hear this right now. Roger is already getting mad. And um, so I went, so I said to Tom Callaway, the DP, I said, if you press the power button on the camera, even if there's no film in it, will the red light come on? So it looks like they're filming. And he said, yeah. And I said, all right, we're going to shoot this thing while your assistant camera dude loads film into one of the other film magazines. Uh, but there's not going to be any film in the camera. And let's not worry about it. We're just going to do it for Roger. <laughs> so we shot several takes of Roger with no film in the camera. Oh, man. <laughs> but then he was happy and he said, very good, go straight ahead, which is what he always tells people, go straight ahead, and he left, and we were really happy, so that was our experience with Jennifer. What is going on now? What are you working on now? Well, I have a film that I finished uh, at the end of last year called Montana Amazon Redux, which stars Olympia Dukakis. It's her last leading role in a feature film and um Allison Brie is in it too oh and, she's great yeah and they're very very good together and it's about the most dysfunctional family in the whole world goes on a road trip <laughs> and they uh spend the entire trip thinking it's a grandmother played by um Olympia and her two grandkids, one of which is Allison and the other one is Haley Joe Osmond, who, who act like they're about 13 and 16 in age when they're obviously much older than that, but they're so socially uh, handicapped by growing up with this grandmother in the mountains of Montana. She also never speaks. So um, they're extremely socially handicapped uh, and they uh, act much younger than they, they are, which is funny. And then you begin to wonder if there's something behind it all. And in, in the end of the movie, you find out what, ha what has happened to the family, the, ah. the trauma that that has suffered, that, that, that they have reacted in these these ways by not speaking and by acting, uh, not growing up essentially, being kind of infantile. And where um, can people see that? It's not out yet. The producer is organizing an a NFT token sale ah, of, uh, of the film for later in the summer. And then in the fall, it will, one of the reasons he's organizing this NFT token sale is 
to pay for theatrical showings of the film because it's too small and too arty of a film for a theatrical distributor to be interested in it. But the producer came up with this way that we could have five or six premieres in different parts of the country and actually show it in a theater. It's kind of like forewalling a film. It's a, it's a slightly different way of doing it. And then it'll go to um, streaming and stars and entertainment. And, and then I have a screenplay that's a grounded sci-fi, a new screenplay that's a grounded sci-fi film, but it has elements of horror in it, uh -huh. <laughs> which is called Sleep is for Sissies. And um, that is actually getting some play in the screenplay contest. Uh, and I'm working on it with uh, Janet Jeffries, who's the uh, development executive for Lawrence Bender Productions. Oh, okay, good. And then also uh, you and I have something in pre-pre-production, right? Let's talk about that a yeah. little bit. Yes, we're gonna do a TV pilot and see if we could sell a TV series based on rock and roll, the rock and roll nightmare books. And I am really looking forward to that because once again, we'll get to combine horror and rock music. And I think it's gonna be really fun. And it, it'll be kind of like what Variety said about your books. Didn't they say it's Rolling Stone meets Tales of the Crypt? Right, <laughs> yeah, you know. some humor. We both love humor and dark comedy. So yeah, I'm really excited about that, bringing rock and roll nightmares to the screen. And we'll, well definitely keep people posted on that as it develops. Well, you've heard it here first. That's right. It's, it's in the very beginning stages, but I think it will be a blast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, before I let you go, uh, where can people find you on social media or do you have a website? My website is filmbrock, all one word, dot com. And I'm on Facebook, DG Brock at Twitter. And uh, Montana Amazon Redux is on Twitter. So I'm around. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Deb. I really appreciate you taking the time to share some of your fun stories uh, from the trenches of horror and music filmmaking. Well, I'm so glad we share these common interests. It's lots yes. of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Bye, Deb. Was, thanks. It was great. Bye-bye. Yeah. As always, I'm going to close the show by reading an excerpt from Rock and Roll Nightmares True Stories, which is currently number one in the music books department of Amazon. At the time of this writing, Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder is the only surviving frontman of the five bands that made 90s grunge a thing. Kurt Cobain, vocalist of Nirvana, died in 1994. Lane Staley of Alice in Chains kicked off in 2002. Scott Weiland of Stone Temple Pilots departed in December 2015. And Soundgarden's Chris Cornell died at the age of 52 in 2017. Unlike his contemporaries, the Evenflow singer has never been known for drug abuse. He even cut back on smoking and drinking in 2013 and claims music is his heroine. 
Heroin chic was a style popularized in the fashion world of the early 1990s. The look glamorized pale skin, dark circles underneath the eyes, a vacant stare, emaciation, and lank stringy hair. It's been said that the look was a backlash in response to the sunny, tanned, and robust models of the previous era, which was typified by Cheryl Teagues, Cindy Crawford, and Jerry Hall. The trend filtered into films like Train Spotting and Permanent Midnight, and of course, many metal and grunge rockers of the 90s glorified heroin addiction, a drug that had become cheaper and purer over the years. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Nightmares Books. That's B-O-O-K-S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time... <laughs>